0: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's brought to you by Digital Media. I'm here with John Favreau, one of the two Jon Favros. This is a right. John Favreaus. This is the John Favreau that used to work in the White House. That's correct. Hung out on Air Force One. Once in a while. Now you're talking to me on a podcast. I'm sorry about that. Life has gone well. Oh, um, <laughs> this is very cool. I've been listening. To, you've been in my ear <laughs> once or twice a week since July. It's a super intense yeah. relationship. You've got, so, you've got a podcast. Among other things, you're doing a podcast, doing a podcast. for Bill Senn's Ringer Network. Yes. Keeping it 1600. You and a cast of three or four other folks for yeah. so the Rotate In and Out? An, o- an Obama crew. We should talk about some of the mechanics of podcasting, but we should talk about Trump and the campaign. And sure. the, we're recording this on a Thursday. It's going to come out hopefully on Tuesday morning. It's nearly impossible, actually, it's literally impossible, <laughs> to keep up with the news cycle. Something could happen ten minutes after we
1: finish this. So yeah, it probably just, will. Which just happened, right? Yes. So,
0: so I was listening to you this morning. You taped something yesterday. In between, then, every woman in the world said Donald Trump had—I'm being facetious right. and flipping. I probably shouldn't—had had assaulted her. Yes. As, as you're thinking about sort of commenting publicly on the race, I mean, w- in a podcast, how do you do that?
1: I, I don't know myself. Yeah, so, I mean, we when, we when we plan each podcast, I think we all talk about, okay, what's happened this week? We try to make it, obviously, as topical as possible. Yeah. But, you know, the good thing is, even if something doesn't seem super newsworthy, we try to cover it in a different way on it, from a different angle than you would see on cable news we would read about, and so I think our philosophy, to the extent that there is one, is we try to bring to bear sort of our experience, having worked in the White House and on campaigns, to what's happening in the news today.
0: The idea of someone who worked in politics who's now commenting on media in, in media, pretty time-tested one, it seems for some reason like what you're doing is a little different, maybe it's just perspective. Uh, maybe we haven't had someone who's been that high up the, the totem pole in Washington who's talking that much, or maybe, maybe yeah. I'm wrong. Maybe
1: it's just something we've always had. I mean, you, you see people who've worked in politics for a long, long time on television and commenting all the time. There's plenty of pundits. I think it's the, the format of podcasting is different because it gives you sort of the space to have a real conversation and not come up with your quick soundbite that you're going to have in your five-minute right. television hit. I think that's what, what's different right, about Right, because we've had that revolving door for a long like George Stephanopoulos, and, that, and at right. one
0: point that was controversial, and depending on the person and the circumstance, it still can be controversial. That's Corey Lewandowski. Right. <laughs> I'd kind of argue that it's actually less of a big deal than pe- other people are saying. Yeah. We should set the stage. So you're podcasting. You've got a consulting business. Yes. In politics and communications, both?
1: Fenway Strategies, uh, it is... We haven't done a lot of politics because... Like, there was a, a Senate race we were thinking about doing, and it would have taken up all of our time. We're It's ex- extremely small, our firm. It's myself, Tommy Vitor, my business partner, who's also on the podcast, right? and we have one other employee. So we just can't take that many clients.
0: And so you, you left the White House in 2013? March of 2013. And it was the plan, I'm going to go into consulting? I, you were in Los Angeles. Was I'm going to go to L.A. and make movies?
1: Yeah, Tommy and I thought maybe we would do some screenwriting, but then we sort of had the opportunity to start this business together because we figured out we paid the bills and we took on some clients and we mainly focused on speech writing sort of message development for folks and we took on a lot of nonprofits uh, a few tech companies and we sort of did that for a while and then i think once this political season began neither of us could turn away from politics <laughs> <laughs> so we'd had our break you so know? you're on camera and off camera
0: talking about politics and mm-hmm. then you're still touching it right like you, did you work with Obama on the, his DNC speech
1: yeah oh, well that's yeah whenever our friends in the in the White House who are still there need help you know I can pitch in I'm always happy to do that so you're
0: still in the mix
1: really and that you're Once in, campaign, in a while right? I mean they pretty it's it's like can you have a you know can you look at this draft that's more of that kind of thing
0: and it's as a listener as a watcher right that's yeah. super cool because <laughs> you're in it right I imagine that just maybe poses a challenge for you occasionally because you've got to figure out, all right, I, I can't talk about this
1: on camera. Yeah, well, I don't. I mean, look, it's, I think I was pretty open about the fact that I helped out a little bit with the convention speech. Aside from that, it's like, you know, giving informal advice once in a while to friends in, in, in the White House yeah. or on the Clinton campaign. But the good thing about how we are on the podcast is, or, or what we talk about on the podcast is, we don't pretend to be... Journalists, we don't pretend to be nonpartisan. I don't think anyone would be super could, partisan, super partisan, super journalists, and you know, we have a point of view. Uh, what I believe is, just because we have a very strong point of view and are very open about what that point of view is, doesn't mean we also still can't offer some real insight into what's going on in the political process because we've been there before.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I really like it. It feels like you're inside, but it's not wonky.
1: Right. Mm. It
0: also feels like. If you're someone who liked the notion of the West Wing as a liberal fantasy of smart, young, idealistic yeah. people who spoke in these like really flowing sentences,
1: <laughs> you kind of have a version of it here. Yeah. Well, I always say that it, it, the real politics is a cross between Veep and the West Wing. That's yeah, I, the real. I do like
0: the Veep version where everyone's. Yeah. It's, it's a little,
1: Many days, it's mostly Veep. Uh, having worked in the Obama administration for many years, there are a few West Wing moments as
0: well. So speaking of the venal version, I, uh, I Googled you, but also I, I, I don't know I don't know what the term for is. I looked you up on WikiLeaks.
1: Oh, okay, this yeah. morning. Have you looked up yourself on WikiLeaks? I've, I've heard that there's an email in there, yeah. You're,
0: you're in the Podesta files. Yes, yeah. And this is, I think, the, the remarkable slash unremarkable thing about all the stuff that's in there. I oh, know. It just shows you behaving like a regular person. They've <laughs> asked
1: you for advice about one of Hillary Clinton's speeches. You're giving it. It's super thoughtful advice. Yeah. Well, it's also advice I've I pre- I mean, I also write for The Ringer. I right. have a column eventually when I'm, you know, I'm not too lazy to sit down and write. It's mostly advice I would have written in a column publicly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when, I, when I saw it, I was like, I like, oh, I'm in WikiLeaks. And then I looked at it, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, That's, yeah, you That's what I job. would say.
0: <laughs> I was in the Sony leak. I wasn't in the Sony leak. But there's a, there's an email or two of mine yeah. in the Sony thing, and someone said you're in that. And I said, well, what is it? I said, oh, well, it says it shows you asking so and so for comment. Like, Right, right. Yeah,
1: that's that's <laughs> yeah, what I do. That's what I do for a
0: living. Uh, not not that I couldn't have had lots of stupid, embarrassing emails in yeah, there, but same here. <laughs> um, you had you had a thing right when you came on in two thousand eight. There was a Facebook photo.
1: There was Facebook photo. Yeah, I uh, was a was a complete moron, and uh, I was at a like a small party at my parents house and there was a cardboard cutout and there were pictures taken and a friend put it on facebook and then it was you and hillary you and, and, and hillary cut yeah. out of hillary someone took a screen grab of that and sent it to the washington post and then that was that
0: and then there was a cool response from clinton's campaign right or from the clinton people saying we're, we're glad john's interested in the yes. state department well i i, I apologized, apologized? Uh, immediately and they um, were
1: gracious enough to accept it
0: had you thought so The backstory is, and you'll tell some of it, um, is you got to the White House as Uh a very young uh, speechwriter. You were an instant celeb. You were already a celebrity sort of in that campaign. Had you thought about sort of as you were going through that and as you're getting to the White House, I'm going to have to button down sort of my profile. I'm going to have to scrub my—you hadn't scrubbed your Facebook, I guess, at that (laughs) point.
1: Well, that was—I mean, it was 2009, so the whole getting in trouble for social media stuff— wasn't really a big I mean it was starting then yeah. you know but no once you get to the White House and I I learned I was able to learn a lesson before I got there that yeah you have to be serious here, and uh, or be a little more serious than I, than you used to be. And, and are you still looking at it that way, or now that you're out of the White House, you can loosen up? I, I am. Uh, I, you know, now I feel like I am who I am. <laughs> you can now that I have this podcast, I pretty much say uh, I say yeah, what I want to. Yeah, it's a pretty expensive trail, right? It's right. Someone wants to do research on you. Yeah, it's exactly. All out there.
0: Should we talk about how you got to the White House? Sure. You got into politics right out of college, right, or while you're still in college?
1: Yes, uh, in college, or College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. There was an internship program my junior year, a DC internship program.
0: Was your family in politics? Was this something you wanted to do from the from My family the, was the always get-go? very
1: uh, into politics. My grandfather was a Republican state rep in New Hampshire way back in the day. So, and then, I, you know, I just remember from a very young age watching politics with my parents. Were they Republicans, uh, Democrats? No, they were Democrats. My father was sort of the, one of the few, uh, he's one of nine siblings from new hampshire and he was one of the only democrats for a while they've all sort of come around now but or at least a lot of them have (laughs) so yeah so there was something that was in your
0: head that you wanted to do do you want to work in politics you want to be elected to something
1: um when i was younger like when i was in high school i thought maybe someday i would so maybe maybe someday one of the jobs i would have is a politician or something like that i thought maybe lawyer Then then i thought then it was lawyer for a while i was like maybe i'll go to law school but by the time i got to college i really didn't know I was a poli-sci major in sociology, and I did a lot of community service. And then I decided, okay, why don't I just try this out? Because I've always wondered about politics. And so I interned with John Kerry in DC. And it just happened to be that I interned in his press office as they were planning his 2004 run. And so I sat next to his communications director, his chief speechwriter, David Wade, and his press secretary, his political director, they were all, all around the office So you the hit time. the lottery yeah. out of the
0: bag, right? Totally. Like you get exposure to someone running to the Democratic nominee.
1: Yes, and then throughout my senior year at Holy Cross, I would email David Wade every month saying, I, I would just love a job on the campaign. Anything, I'll take anything. Once in a while, he'd email me back and say, "Oh, don't worry about it, we'll take care of you. The night before graduation, I still had no job. And David called and said, Okay, you got two weeks to move to DC. You're going to be a press assistant. We're going to pay you almost nothing. You're going to wake up at 4 a.m. to send the news clips around to everyone in the campaign. You're psyched. I'll take it. I'm in. So I went down there. And, you know, I had, uh, it was an unbelievable experience. At one point, it looked like Kerry was going to lose to Dean in the primary. Isn't the scream? This I don't ca- know, pre scream. Pre scream. Look, the Kerry campaign was, there's a big shake up. Campaign manager was fired. My boss at the time was Robert Gibbs. I was his assistant. He quit. So, and then they needed a deputy speechwriter, and they didn't. I wanted to be deputy speechwriter. They said no at first, and then uh, they realized that no one would take the job because they thought the campaign was in free fall and they didn't have to pay me any more than my yeah. paltry salary. You so got they a promotion. so I got a promotion, and then Kerry wins the nomination, so I stayed on as uh, deputy speechwriter. So you stayed there, and then you got to Obama. How post election? Gibbs had gone to work for Obama's Senate race. And he emailed me and said, you know, Obama's never had a speechwriter before. He wrote the 04 convention speech himself. But he's going to need to learn to work with a speechwriter now. Would you be interested in sitting down with him? And that was... So I had breakfast with Obama his first week in the Senate. Sat down with him. He's a senator from Illinois. Senator from Illinois. Very low profile. Yes, very low profile. 99th in seniority. And we sat down... He, it was one of the easier interviews I've ever done. Uh, he asked about my life, he asked about my upbringing, why I cared about politics, and then at the end of the interview he said, uh, well, I don't think I need a speechwriter, but you seem nice enough, so let's give this a whirl.
0: <laughs> and you take him at face value that, that he was gonna do the bulk of the work
1: and you were gonna be around to sort of polish up? Or? That's right. Th- yeah, I mean, I, I, before the interview I had prepared by reading Dreams From My Father. And I remember reading that book, and even more so than when I saw him speak at the convention, reading that book, I was like, if someone who writes this honestly thinks he can make it in politics, I wanna, be, I wanna stick around to watch that happen.
0: So you go and you get this job, it's a cool job, yeah. and then at some point it becomes a much cooler job because he becomes a serious contender oh, to be yeah. president, and then he's the nominee. Yep. When you went in, did you have someone you were modeling your writing after? Did you think, oh, I'm gonna, this, is someone, this guy figured it out, or this woman figured it out, I'm gonna, I'm gonna
1: ape them? Truthfully, I had to sort of unlearn a lot of what I did about speech writing to write for him, because the Kerry campaign, to extend a lot of Democratic campaigns and Republican campaigns at the time, the running theory is that speeches are sort of a collection of applause lines and quotable lines for the press, you know, so Right, bites. they're built to be redistributed. Right, get your soundbite, get your applause line at a rally, you know, and... There's a lot of consultants involved, a lot of pollsters involved, and so you construct a speech with this big committee and all that kind of stuff. Obama was a writer. He's always been a writer, and he's always been very involved in his own speeches. And so a lot of the language he wanted to use, a lot of language he would use in, in his political career up to that point, in Dreams from My Father, was just very different language that you didn't always hear in politics. It sounded more conversational. It sounded more like a conversation normal people would have who were yeah. in politics. And so I... It was refreshing to learn that from him. But really, to be a good speechwriter, you don't model yourself after other speechwriters or, or other speakers. You try to get in the head of the person that you're writing for. And, and you it's do different that every, you're
0: reading his stuff. You're just reading his stuff. to stuff all
1: day. I had conver- in the Senate, I would have conversations with him before every big speech, 20, 30 minutes on the topic. If he didn't have time to think about it, I would interview him, try to get his thoughts. I'd read every transcript of every interview he did. I'd go to his town halls, listen to how he answered every question. And so... Uh, Yeah, I just tried to get inside his head. So you put in five years there at the White House. Yes.
0: You were saying when you came on 2009, Facebook was just starting to be a thing, Twitter was barely Mm -hmm. a thing. When you look at the media landscape and how much it changed between when you went in and when you
1: left, what's the biggest change you notice? I mean, sort of the diffuse nature of the media. Um, People aren't getting their news from one source anymore. They're getting it from very different sources. We know this, especially uh, young people. And I think in the White House, we learned that to effectively deliver the message, you had to meet people where they are. Because so when, when Obama ran, it was, oh, he's the, it's the Facebook
0: campaign or he right. digital, but really it was a pretty traditional campaign with some social media sort of
1: attached to it. Yeah, well, the, the, the movement was very, technology helped fuel this right. grassroots movement uh, in terms of the fundraising in terms of the organizing, that was very big. Uh, That was, you know, very technologically adept at the time. But you're right. I think once we get to the White House, it took us a little while to realize, you know, there's a lot of people getting their news and information from very different diffuse sources. And we have to make sure the president, you know, gives interviews like we get a lot of we got a lot of crap from the white house press corps for having him do interviews with youtube stars right it's like well we're not doing that to avoid tough questions we're actually doing that because a lot of people that's what, how they consume their news and information right so he we did a whole president. slew
0: of that stuff sort of in the, in the later part of his yeah. his term or a second term and then how does it affect just sort of speech writing right if, if you're in a world especially now right where yeah. you've got trump and and he gives speeches but they're just rants and and maybe this is just tr- specific to trump and what's going on now but i can't tell you a single speech that hillary clinton's delivered And maybe no one ever can really do that unless you're really in that world but it seems like the idea of delivering a speech that has import or even those quotable lines you're talking about just seems like we're in a world where we've moved past that in
1: some ways we haven't I, i did not change my writing style obama did not change his writing style because the media changed i think that was important because a lot of times people ask like oh did you end up writing quicker sound bites because of twitter and a hundred f- no didn't do any of that because our belief is if you write something unique and interesting that people are going to want to hear if you have something of substance to say that's different people will take the time to listen to it michelle obama this morning but right before we did this gave a speech in new hampshire where she talked not j- i mean it's going to be covered as you know she sort of took on trump but really it was a speech about sexual assault and how we treat women and how, you know, and it was one of the most important speeches of the campaign, I think. I think people will go watch that speech in full. Um, so will start with the Twitter headline? Yeah, we'll start with the people. And
0: maybe you watch the shorter clip, but you think eventually there's a, there's there's a enough, subset of people who get to yeah, that. there's enough speech. buzz
1: about it. Like, you, if you look on Twitter, there's enough people saying, wow, this is different, this is a moment. And so then that drives people to say, oh, what are they all talking about? And then you click on the YouTube link and then you you know, watch ten minutes as opposed to the thirty-second clips we're all so accustomed to. So I think you. Ha- I think that's the only way to do it. Because if you try to tailor all of your communications and writing to the very fast nature of how we're all sped up right now, you're just you're destined to come off with slogans and sound bites that sound cheesy and inauthentic.
0: It must be frustrating for you, right? You you work on these speeches. They take you days, weeks in some cases. Mm-hmm. But inevitably, right, they are going to get reduced, just the nature of media, right, Right. to a second or a couple seconds. You sort of make your peace with that, right?
1: Yeah, but it's also why I uh, fight against length. Um, That was always a fight that I would pick in the White House. I think, you know, 15 minutes is the max for a speech these days. I think if you have a lot to say, you can go 20. I think the idea that presidents give 45, 50-minute, hour-long State of the Unions is ridiculous and will be anachronistic in you know, five, ten years. I don't think that we'll, we'll have that anymore.
0: And what about the, just that style of just the State of the Union address and other formal addresses and the trappings that come with that? When we're in a world where a YouTube star is someone in their basement speaking directly to the camera yeah. and it's, it's head on, do you think that maybe politics eventually adapts to that? Or, I do. Or I
1: do. it already has. I think there's a few moments where you need the gravity of the trappings, but I think most of the time, politicians and politics sort of need to adapt to a much more informal sort of culture because i think part of the reason there's such distrust, mistrust out there politicians and, and or any institution is that there is sort of a dead language that people in politics and on, and on cable news and in other places use that we don't use in normal conversation, right? Like you don't hear it on podcasts. Right. You don't hear it in real life. You don't hear it in other places. No, we
0: even talk about it in digital publishing, right? We're like, you use a conversational headline style. Stop using, if it's something you wouldn't say to someone about the
1: story, don't put it in the headline. That's right. That's right. No, I mean, I. my buddy said, you know, who's a, a speechwriter now at the White House, took over for me, Cody Keenan. He said, if, if you can't say it to a... Uh, friend at a bar, don't make me put it in a speech. <laughs> oh,
0: I, I like we can have all, we can just have all the conversations at a bar, it'd be great. Yeah, right, exactly. A little sloppy,
1: too. <laughs> um,
0: what do you think of, of the work, Hillary seems like the archetype traditional politician, she's been in politics for 30 right. years, as Donald Trump always says, she, you can see her trying to loosen herself up a little bit, but yeah. it seems like she's never going to be loose, and that's just who she is. Right. If you were working with her, you, you work with her a
1: little bit, would you try to push her off that, or you'd say it is what it is? I, I, yeah, I think that having seen her now for a year and watched her very closely, there are times when I think she's very effective, and those times are when she's telling stories. Now, obviously, there are the very cliche, I met a woman in Iowa, and she didn't have health care, right? Like, I'm not necessarily talking about that, but she has these sort of quiet moments. She did a couple times in the convention speech. She did when she won the nomination, where she's just sort of telling a story and conversational, or I think she's most effective when she's hit Trump, She just kind of throws out the line that Trump has said and will say in deadpan, you know, like, oh, he says he knows more about ISIS than the generals. No, you don't. No, you don't is not some snappy line. Right. But it was the right line. It was effective. Um, And so I think when she doesn't put a lot of spin on the ball and try to use the snappy lines and all that kind of stuff. Speaks directly and Speaks directly to people, doesn't try to, like, pound the podium and get people. She's much better. She's much more effective. And do you think there are people in her campaign trying to get her to do that? Or do they say this is, or do you think they've
0: got a more traditional campaign? I mean, their social media stuff seems super smart and savvy. It seems disconnected from
1: her in a lot of ways. I think they would love it if she did that all the time. But I think once you get going on a campaign and it's every single day and all you're doing is just like, what's the topper and the stump for tomorrow? <laughs> you know, the like, train is going. It's just going so fast, you know, and there's a million other things you have to think about in a campaign. You're not sitting every day and trying to, Start from scratch. And know. as
0: someone who does this professionally, the, there was one that really stuck out for me. I want to get your perspective on this. In the first debate, she comes out with this, I want to say it, Trump, Trumped, Trumped, Trumped up, up, up trickled trickle down. down. It's a catchphrase. She's, they, like, she doesn't do off-the-cuff stuff like you right. talked about. They have worked on it. I would assume they've even focus grouped it.
1: Nah. They no? wouldn't have focus grouped it.
0: So how how does something that ungainly and ugly get
1: <laughs> on national TV?
0: Because anyone who looked at it goes, Oh no.
1: You're don't in a do bubble it. and you're like, okay, we gotta make something stick. Someone says, Oh, this this might be a s- interesting phrase, let's do it. And, and they just float it. And they just float it. If I had been there, I'd say let's let's not go with that one, guys. So there's a
0: limit, so you've got a bunch of people in your ear, and someone has that bad idea, and someone else can't stop that?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is, I was fortunate on the Obama campaign because I had had that relationship with Obama in the Senate office, and people knew that when I said something probably wouldn't fly because it doesn't sound like him, they trusted that I had some authority over that. And David Axrod was there too, and he had the same authority. And so, when someone came up with some idea that wasn't so great, <laughs> or a phrase that was a little, a uh, little off, and I, I would be there and say, "No, he's, he's not going to say that. He's not going to do that." You were the
0: gatekeeper for that.
1: A lot of the, yeah. And I mean, Axrod obviously and, and Pluff would make some of those decisions as well. But yeah, it was more, nine times out of ten, I knew if it was something that Obama would say or wouldn't say.
0: So, do you guys think you would run the same campaign? I mean. Trump is the wild card here, but right. if if you were with Obama, if he was running in 2016, are you running essentially the same... I mean, the messaging will be different because it's a different time. Right. But in terms of how you do speeches and how you communicate and, and how you want the candidate to express himself, yeah. it's the same as what it was eight
1: years ago? Oh, for Obama now? Yeah. I bet he would do... I bet the communication strategy would be different. Um, the messaging and the, the speech-making would be the same. It would be the same. But I think the communication strategy would be different because you'd see sort of, it it would be the same difference as the first term of the White House and the second term of the White House where he tried tried to do all these other different kind of interviews. So getting the message out would change, but I think the message itself and the way he delivers it would be the same.
0: There's this thing now, the last year, the the, the late-term Obama, right? done the lame duck Obama, does really interesting policy stuff he's done Cuba, the FCC, and then some of it's the way he communicates, right? You see these speeches where he's in Philadelphia, someone tells him that that gas prices are down, he says, thank you, Obama, it's a great (laughs) laugh line. Uh, There was one this week where someone, he's he's talking about him and Hillary being compared to the devil, and he sniffs himself, (laughs) and he's loose and funny. Is that just because, look, it's 2016, and, and he's allowed to do that, or is this something that he didn't want to do earlier on i, I think wish there's, there's a little
1: revisionist history i mean i him doing the sniffing and the demon yeah. thing there's so many instances of him having done that during the first campaign during the second campaign in 2012 yeah. when he was president i think it's the difference between him on the campaign trail and him in sort of informal environments versus him standing in the rose garden giving a statement on policy right he's never going to be loose and funny yeah. right when he's Announcing something serious, and I think part of the issue we dealt with when we were in the White House is now he's got all these serious policies, serious responsibilities, and sometimes you have to be scripted and you have to be more cautious because the words you say have real consequences. Somewhere they can send country's gonna stock markets you. tumbling. Right. They can send armies to war, and so there is a caution built in in governing that sometimes makes communication or informal communications, conversational communication, a little bit more difficult.
0: And there's two schools of thought about what happens in the next election, yeah. that there will be another Trump, it'll be a smarter Trump, and he'll tweak it a little bit, and he'll be just as racist but better at coding it, and yeah. he won't grope as many women, and there's another one that says, no, no, this is a one-off, there's no one like him.
1: Where do you come down on that? I'm pretty worried that it will be a smarter Trump. I'd like to think that's not true, though. I'm, it's funny, even though you know, the never-Trump people, if their preferred candidate, would probably give our, prefer, you know, our next candidate a lot more trouble right. <laughs> in the next race, I'm pulling for them. Because you know, I don't want to lose an election, but at the same time, what we have gone through in 2016, 2015, is so awful because of Donald Trump. I just don't want to see that happen again. Uh and so i within the Republican Party, I'm not pulling for the the Trump forces just so we can keep winning elections and piling up <laughs> victories like yeah. I want that party to change because I think I think Democrats need a healthy opposition party to fight
0: with, and you'd also like to be in the bounds of like the conversation
1: right yeah, uh, I'd like to be and I'd like to be arguing about issues, and I think we have a better position on issues, and I think we can win on that and I just I think Trump's going to lose in a couple weeks, but I think he's already done a lot of damage.
0: Again, the, the, some of the conventional wisdom on Trump as well, he's speaking to this angry, disenfranchised yeah. white, angry male. Uh, and there's another that says he's popular because he's popular. He was a popular TV character, and mm-hmm. it's it's pro wrestling, and and that's it's it's not the policy. It's him right. as a character, yeah, um, which would mean that he's sort of a one-off. Or do you think? I mean, we're, it seems like you think there's.
1: He's, someone's gonna tap into the anger that he found. Yeah, I think he got some attention because he's just a celebrity in general, but the people who liked Donald Trump aren't the people who are. it's not like the whole celebrity apprentice audience is now Trump's base. Right. <laughs> the base is, I mean, all Trump did to get elected was he actually had his people listen to talk radio for 13 weeks or 14 weeks and watch Fox, and read Breitbart and say okay what do these people care about he's basically parroting the right what the right wing media has been the far right media has been doing for the last has been talking about for the last 8 to 10 years and that's his platform you think he believes it i don't know it's so hard i mean i think the the idea of like getting into someone's head is it's such a, like, but pundit he puts thing it to on do. he puts it on display. I know. It's just, I don't know. Maybe he does believe it. Maybe he does. Maybe, you know, when you, when you say something enough, you, when you say a lie enough, it starts in your own head, it starts to uh, sound like the truth.
0: As someone who's been inside and now outside when it comes to punditry, mm-hmm. do you think media ca- the media r- – the reporting's been very good, Excellent. right? New York Times doing great work, yep. Washington Post doing great work, lots of other sites, especially those two. Do you think the pundits are, are doing an adequate job given no. what they're supposed to do? No.
1: No. I think punditry is writ large broken in in this country. And I think, look, there are... I don't want to... I have to be very careful of, you know, like you said, I think reporters, when they're reporting, are doing, overall, a fantastic job on this election. Washington Post, New York Times, BuzzFeed, a lot of great reporting. I think there are journalists on cable news who are doing an outstanding job. You see a Jake Tapper interview, you know that. I also think that... When people announce that they're, I'm a conservative pundit or I'm a liberal pundit, then at least you know where they're coming from. Right. But there's a lot of pundits out there who don't who pretend that they don't have a side or that they're not liberal. Oh, or Republican. that's your critique is that they're, is it they're they're biased? No, it's not that they're biased one way or the other. Say so I don't think that they're biased towards one ideology. Right. You're seems like, like they're biased, they're biased about towards the entertainment. And they're like, oh, they're a bad pundit because they just want Trump to win or they want Hillary to win. They I want don't think they that's want the entertainment. They want to the entertainment. They're coming up with a narrative in a horse race that's not reflected by the polls and the data. Every day is some new drama that they think is gonna affect the entire race, and and maybe it's not. I mean, I the second debate, we watched the second debate here, and that first 30 minutes for Trump was an unmitigated disaster. It looked like he was gonna fall off the stage. No one has turned in a worse debate performance than he has in those first 30 minutes. The next 60 minutes, he was regular bad. And then the debate ends, and you have all these pundits who are like, I don't know, he did a lot better than the first one. I think he won that one. And then 30 minutes later, every single poll comes back that Hillary Clinton won, won by a large margin. Right. And you're like, what was that analysis that we just got?
0: Right. <laughs> it, it, didn't, it didn't seem like it changed the. I mean, this is the problem, right? Because like what does the debate really mean? And right. did it change the, the, the polls? It didn't change the polls. Right. I mean, it's.
1: But sober analysis would say, OK, so that was a disaster in the first 30 minutes. Will it change the race? Right. We don't know. We have to wait and so see. So you
0: just think <laughs> there just should not be that sort of... You, sort less of
1: predictions. Drama critic? I think, there's, I think there's less predictions. I think there's less about the drama. There's less about performance. There's less about optics. And there's more about, um, if you're talking about the horse race, I think the people who do data journalism and who look at polls and look at data, I think that's a good. those are good people to listen to. I think reporters who are finding out new information from sources, those are good people to listen to. And I think people from both parties who've been in these campaigns who can tell you, This is, you know, forget about just us. There's plenty of other people who do it.
0: Seems like in political journalism, there's a conversation about this that's gone on for decades. We should stop covering the horse race. We should stop doing this kind of empty punditry. We'll get better next year. And then they (laughs) just double down on it. And they're usually rewarded by the audience, definitely rewarded this year. Four years ago, Nate Silver really seemed like he might have blown it up because he just said, no, there's the polls and that's it. Every other discussion is, is pointless. I have the numbers. Here they are. And again we're in 2016 and and again there's great journalism but there's just plenty of airtime to fill just talking.
1: That's the, that's the tough part. Is I think some of the people who are on TV, you meet them, they're very smart intelligent people. They're they're a lot of them are great political reporters, but there's a format issue where when you're just sta- sitting on TV and there's airtime to fill, you just say things. <laughs> and I've been there like I've found myself on TV just like blah blah blah, yep. you know, and you're like did anything I say either A, make sense, or B, you know, add anything to the conversation or people's understanding of politics? Sometimes I tell myself no, I, did. I don't know why I just did that.
0: <laughs> Let's fast forward to the end of this campaign. Yeah. We're gonna assume that Hillary wins. You think Trump does the TV thing, or do you think he?
1: I think there's a good chance done. he does the TV yeah. thing. I mean, I think, you know, Ailes' departure and everything else, Fox is in a sort of a weird transition, and you know, the Breitbart forces, I mean, believe it or not, there's a big segment of the country out there that thinks, or a big segment of the viewership and audience out there that thinks, like, Fox is not conservative enough. Right. <laughs> so the Breitbart world will have some kind of television venture, and maybe Trump will be involved in that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do th- I do think we've, we've learned watching these Glenn Beck, and Oprah, and everyone who tried to launch a personally driven thing, mm-hmm. you've got to be on camera daily if you want it to be about you, and you oh, can't we know. just sort of bless we know,
1: it. We know Trump loves that.
0: Yeah, yeah, although it's still work. He's got to show up. That's true and do you have any inkling on what Obama does post White
1: House? We're helping out a little bit with the foundation and I think right now, I mean, there's a lot of work left to do and we gotta wait for them to to leave the White House, but his campaign and his entire political career has been based on sort of grassroots change and change, a different model of change that comes from the grassroots, that comes from civic engagement, citizenship or renewal of citizenship, very bottom up. And I think what he'll be focused on through the work of the foundation is finding across a a wide array of issues, finding ways to sort of drive this grassroots notion of change. People in my world
0: think, oh, it looks like he really likes tech. He he did the cover of Wired, and and he just did a tech thing on the White House lawn, a South By thing. Um, He'd be a really good VC. Can you imagine him being someone who walks into an office and, and, and funds a startup? You know,
1: I don't, I can't, because I think he's, why he likes tech so much is He's very taken with the idea of new tools to sort of create, help create change and help create bottom-up movements. And I think to the extent that his camp, both of his campaigns were sort of built on the latest technology and very driven by data, I think that appeals to him in a big way. And he's sort of, you know, he's, he's very into science, very into innovation. He's a you know, nerd. He's a total nerd. And car- to see what nerd. some of these Companies, some of these startups are doing. I think that fascinates him. But not, but that's, the, not, but the, but that's not the writing out of term That's different than yeah, than writing. Out. Trying to woo the guy with the next uh, yo app. I don't quite. I don't quite see him doing that now.
0: And then, what do you do? You,
1: uh, does the does I the podcast
0: know. continue past? past we certainly of? would like
1: to continue it. Yeah. Um,
0: this is a job for you. This is a.
1: It, well, I got to figure that out. You know, I think once the election ends, it's we're you know, sort of doing like two jobs right now. But I've learned after taking a couple years off from politics, that I think no matter what I do in life, I'm gonna have to be involved somewhat in politics because I care about this stuff too much. Sometimes I care about it to a point where it becomes a bad habit and I'm checking Twitter too much, for sure, and I find myself in the punditry game and I need to like step back and and look at the bigger picture. But a career in a life where I'm Totally not paying attention to politics and just focused on other stuff. I don't think that's in the You're cards. Back in the game in some capacity. Some capacity. But I'm staying in LA and I'm certainly not moving back to DC. If you can pull both those things off at the same time, that's a pretty cool dude. To- we'll see. We'll see if I can.
0: Awesome. Thanks for your time.
1: Thank you for I appreciate uh, it. Thanks
0: for talking. It's been fun. Thanks to you guys for listening. If you like this stuff, there's plenty more. You can go find it over on Spotify or Google or Apple. Our asks are that you subscribe. That'd be great. It'd be great if you rated us. It'd be awesome if you told a friend. But mostly just to enjoy it. Thanks to Digital Media, we will see you guys next week.